0: in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us of evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and glory. Forever and ever, Amen. (coughs) Well, welcome. This morning, uh, Pastor Rodi is out, so I'm going to jump in here and kind of do a one one day thing, and I'm going to look at, um, as you see on the board and on the PowerPoint, Lutheran's doctrine of vocation. And if anybody's looking online, I'm told that this PowerPoint is put on, so you can go to the link and click on it and and, uh, follow along with me. And apparently, that will be up online for a few days in a PDF PDF format. (coughs) So I want to pack, unpack a lot here, and I'm going to try to do it within an hour. I've got a lot of stuff, and maybe I might be over, think I get through this. But in any event, bear with me. I may move fast, but if I do, and if anyone has any questions, please don't hesitate to just interrupt me, because I, I really want us to take a look at this. This is such a great topic, and, and especially today about vocation. You know, pastor's been talking a lot about it. And um, what I want to do today, though, is just a little different I want to look at Lutheran's doctrine of vocation through two lenses, and it's two of his subcategories of vocation. And what we're going to look at is, first of all, is Luther's three estates, and then we're going to look at Lutheran's, the, the theology of the two kingdoms, God's left hand and God's right hand. And what I'm going to do is, Luther has written a ton on this, I'm going to give you guys some things to read if you're interested. Um, but really what I'm going to do is basically we're going to start with the three estates, just really looking at a little bit of the, the small catechism and go through that, and then we'll get to the, the, the two estates. <clears throat> uh, before I begin, though, I, I wrote a paper for one of my classes, and I, I don't want to bore you, but I kind of want to open this topic with a couple things I wrote here. Um, the article concerning justification that's faith alone, right? Faith alone, not, not from our works, but from what Christ did. There's no, there, there's no argument that that is the central doctrine of our Lutheran confession and of our Lord's doctrine. Concerning justification, we know that we cannot obtain forgiveness of sins and righteousness before God through our own merit, work, or satisfaction. And that comes from the Augsburg Confession. It's called Article 4, and this is, the, this is the article that the Lutheran Church stands or falls. And really what this is, is good works do not justify sinful man. We know that. And again, this is foremost in our Lord's doctrine. <clears throat> However, we do talk about works, right? And works are not to altogether thrown away for the Christian, no. To the contrary, Good works are a part of the Christian's sanctified life, right? Justified life is justified how we're justified before God, and that's nothing that we do. But in our sanctified life, we are given work we are given to do works that are produced by the Holy Spirit from our faith. <clears throat> now the Augsburg Confession states it is also taught that such faith should yield good fruit and good works, and that a person must do such good works as God has commanded for God's sake but not place trust in them as if they thereby to earn grace before God. Now, of course, Article 4 was written in response to the Roman Catholic's allegations, or excuse me, that was 6, was written in response to the Roman Church's allegation that the Lutheran doctrine of justification by faith alone had really rendered works completely unnecessary in the Christian life. To the contrary, Works are understood as the fruits of justification, not the basis of it, right? In the small card articles, Luther states, If good works do not follow faith, then faith is false and not true. So then the question I looked at is, What are the good works that the Christian does do as a fruit of justification in the Christian life? And Luther, in his book, uh, Treatise on a Christian Liberty, The Freedom of a Christian, writes this, Therefore a Christian should be guided in all his works by his thought and contemplate this one thing alone, that he may serve and benefit others in all that he does, considering nothing except the need and the advantage of his neighbor. Luther bases this... On parts of St. Paul's letter to the Ephesians, where St. Paul commends that one should labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he or she can give to the needy. And this is Ephesians 4.28. Based on St. Paul's word, Luther concludes, This is what makes caring for the body a Christian work, and through its health and comfort we may be able to work, to acquire, and lay by funds with which to aid those who are in need. This is the way the strong member may serve the weaker and may be sons of God, each caring for and working for the other, bearing one other's burdens and so fulfilling the law of Christ. And Luther says, this is truly the Christian life. Finally, Luther adds, I will therefore give myself as Christ to my neighbor, just as Christ offered himself to me I will do nothing in this life except what I see as necessary, profitable, and salutary to my neighbor, since through faith I have an abundance of all good things in Christ. Now this is important. Although Christian is free from all works in justification, he ought in this liberty to empty himself, take upon himself the form of a servant, to be made in the likeness of men, be found in human form, and to serve, help, and in every way deal with his neighbor as he sees that God's through Christ has dealt with him. So it is clear from Luther's perspective that good works that Christians do as a fruit of their faith is all done towards the neighbor. These works form the basis of Christian life. This again, as I said at the beginning, is our sanctified life. Good works are done not to prove one's justification in a self-aggrandizing way but done only out of love for the neighbor on, on behalf of the neighbor's benefit. And Luther says, when we do these good works for a neighbor, we are truly living the Christian life. So that's the background for this, this Luther's doctrine of vocation. It's not in the justified language but it's in our sanctified lives when we do good works. Where do we do them? And out of this is where Luther's doctrine of vocation flows. Um, vocation, um, is vo- it comes from the Latin word vocatio. It is actually calling, and that's why we call it a calling. We think sometimes vocation as job, but a vocation is our calling. Uh, the Roman Catholic view, the time around the Reformation, The the Roman Catholic Church really advocated that our good works, or your vocation, that was only really in the realm of those who served the Church through either as a priest or in the monastic order, and these were the only callings that Rome thought where God could be fully served by living a life that was truly spiritual. And that really required a full-time commitment. In this spiritual full-time commitment, either as a priest or in, a, in the monastic order, a nun or somehow in the monastery taken from life, one would renounce marriage, secular work, and economic advancement through, through taking vows of cele, uh, celibacy, obedience, and poverty. That was the situation that Luther was in. And recall, Luther, before the Reformation, he was in this system. Luther, in fact, had tried to use the vocation of a monk and priest as a more direct path to God. However, as we all know, he found that this path only led him back to his own performance, which always revealed to Luther his damnation. As a result, we know that Luther abandoned the Roman Catholic belief that sacred or religious activities were more pleasing than other activities. So what Luther did then, as he breaks out and studies and starts writing, he applied this calling or vocation not to just priests or nuns or those that have withdrawn from the world and in the monastic life, but Luther he began to apply vocation to all Christians. In the line of reasoning, he focused on 1 Corinthians 7.20, which said each one should remain in the condition in which he is called. In commenting on this text, Luther writes, How is it possible that you are not called? You have always been in some state or station You have always been a husband or a wife, a boy, a girl, or a servant. Picture before you the humblest estate. Are you a husband? And you think that you have a not to do in that spirit to govern your wife, children, domestics, and property, property, so that all may be obedient to God, and you do no one any harm? Yeah, if you had five heads and ten hands, even then, you would be too weak for your task. So, you would never dare to think of making a pilgrimage or doing any kind of saintly work. So, Luther's concept of the Christian calling exhibits the characteristics of his teaching of the Bible, especially in the areas of creation, sin, law, the person of Christ, which were woven together in God's revelation of himself and his will for his human creatures. Vocation now, according to Luther, has to do how God governs and cares for his creation by working through human beings. Luther saw man as fellow workers with God. Luther describes the Christian individual as a conduit or channel which receives from God through faith and then gives forth below to others through love. Luther makes it clear that God's own love reaches out to others through Christians as channels from God. God is present on earth when a Christian directs his or her service to others. God dwells in heaven, but now he is near and working on earth with man as his co-cooperator. In the large catechism, it is said that all creatures, parents, and authority are specifically mentioned as God's hands, channels, and means through which he gives all things. And it's here then that Luther talks about a defined structure on how this is done. God callings are limited to these stations in life which are established in Scripture. And it is these stations, these three estates, the church, the family, or the household, and the, the, the state. For Luther, these are the divinely established stations to which a Christian is called. And we're going to look at these here, the Luther's doctrine of vocation, then within the context that I just talked about. We'll go through the three estates, and then we're going to look at the two kingdoms. Now, it's really important to understand Luther's doctrine of vocation. It is really important to understand these two, what I call and others write as subcategories. Um, and it's really to understand the doctrine of the three estates and the two kingdoms and to really bring them together. A lot of times people space these out and look at them separately, but really when we look at this concept of vocation, we must lose, look at the three estates and the two kingdoms together. So, I'll start here with the three estates and then we'll look at um we'll look at the two kingdoms. So, As I say at the beginning, Luther's written a ton on this stuff, but really I want to take it down to its simplest form, Um, the doctrine of vocation from the perspective here of the three estates, and we're using then the small catechism. Now one of the great things about Luther's small catechism is that really it's a a compendium of all of Luther's thoughts smashed together in really simple forms. And you can always use the catechism as a starting point to see how Luther and then our Lord actually, all of the theology is really contained within the small catechism. And I'm going to do this today. So in this case, we're going to look just a few portions of the the small catechism with respect to Luther's development of his three estates. And the first here is the first article of the Apostles' Creed. Remember, there's six chief parts, and uh, um, this is the um, second part after the Ten Commandments. Luther goes into an analysis of the Apostles' Creed, and in that he has three articles. First is God, second is Christ, and third is the Holy Spirit. So, with respect to looking at the three estates, Luther really packs a lot of stuff into the first article of the Apostles' Creed. Here on this. And I'm going to read this just briefly and then we'll take a look at it. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. What does this mean? I believe that God has made me and all my creatures, that he has given me my body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members, my reason and all my senses, and still takes care of them. He also gives me clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children, land, animals, and all that I have. He richly and daily provides for me with all that I need to support this body and life. He defends me against all danger and guards and protects me from all evil. All this He does only out of fatherly divine goodness and mercy without any merit or worthiness in me. For all this it is my duty to thank and praise, serve and obey Him. This is most certainly true. Sound familiar? I take it. So to begin with, right here, when Luther writes, and I'm bold at it, God has made me and all creatures. He starts with really an anthropological look at us as human beings and how we were creating our ancestors. And he's looking at it from that perspective. Okay, Then he moves on to, he also gives me clothing and shoes and food and drink. This is a cosmological perspective, really kind of how we live in the world today's physics and metaphysical dealing of our living in the world, how how is this done? Clothing, shoes, food and drink. Um And then Luther says this. He has given me my body and soul, eyes and ears and all my members, my reason and all my senses. Here Luther is is still is claiming and confessing creation in the Apostles' Creed. Now here in a minute, you'll see where I'm going with all this. In addition here, Luther moves on then how in creation, he's created of how he takes care of us, which I mentioned, clothing and shoes, food and drink, house and home, wife and children. So it's this movement of creation to how he's dealing with us here on earth, right here in the Apostles' Creed. And then, at the end, Luther tells us why he does this. First of all, Luther is confessing who this God is and his attitude toward us. As he writes, "...all this he does only out of fatherly, divine goodness and mercy, without any merit or worthiness in me." Luther then brings the doctrine of justification in precisely here. You see in the 16th century, these words worth and merit were really fighting words between Luther and Rome. Merit figured into justification. Worth had to do also with justification and then also with respect to the Lord's Supper. But here, Luther is saying that in the Catechism that God has actually created me simply out of his mercy, out of his goodness, without any regard to my merit or my worth. And then we see here, for all this is my duty to thank and praise, serve and obey. Well, where do we thank and praise God? In the small catechism, Luther's bringing the first point of the Apostles' Creed here into our prayers in our morning prayer says in, in our catechism on page 30. In the morning, Luther says, when In the morning when you get up, you make the sign of the Holy Cross and say, In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Then kneeling or standing, repeat the creed in the Lord's Prayer. If you, can, if you choose, you may say this little prayer. I thank you, my Heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have kept me this night from all harm and danger. We know that, right? And then Luther writes at the end of that, after you do that, then go joyfully to work, singing a hymn like that of the Ten Commandments or whatever your devotion may suggest. So here in the small catechism, Luther has this little litur- lit- liturgy for the beginning of the day. You get up, you bless yourself in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, you confess the creed, you say the Lord's Prayer, and then you say this, this also this little morning prayer. And this prayer draws together so much in the, uh, the Ten Commandments the Lord's Prayer and the Creed, and, and, and then we go on, and, and, and Luther says to sing a prayer. We also thank and praise God in the evening prayer, and I've got it written out here. In the evening, when you go to bed, make the sign of the Holy Cross and say, In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit, Amen. Then kneeling or standing, repeat the Creed and the Lord's Prayer. If you choose, you may also say this little prayer. I thank you, my heavenly Father, through Jesus Christ, your dear Son, that you have graciously kept me this day and on. And we know that. And then Luther says, then go to sleep at once in good cheer. Again, I'm coming to a point here, so bear with me. So we've got, we've got this line of stuff of God created us. We're in creation now. He takes care of us. Then he says, then thank and praise him. Luther's telling us how we do this with these prayers. And also, we do this, we thank and praise God. There's many times the prayers we say at the, at the dinner table and on page 32 of the Catechism, we see returning thanks, thanks. Luther writes, also after eating, they shall in a like manner, reverently and with folded hands say, give thanks to the Lord for he is good. Then you also should also say, as I bolded it here, we thank you, Lord God, Heavenly Father, for all your benefits through Jesus Christ. Okay. So I've kind of lined up this first article analysis, creation, now we're to give thanks and praise to God. But here's where I'm going with vocation. In our praise and thanksgiving of God, Luther locates this in the daily life. We just saw that. We thank and praise God in the morning when you get up, at mealtime, and then when you go to bed. And what's very interesting about this is these actually are the most mundane, ordinary things of daily life. Waking up, going to bed. And it's things that we have to do. We have to sleep, right? We have to eat. And it's those things that we have to do. We've got prayers to where we thank God. So Luther is locating this thanks and praise of God in these ordinary, mundane aspects of the day. At the end of the Apostles' Creed, Luther also says, after he, well, we talked about, for this is my duty to thank and praise, Luther also adds this this is to serve and obey him. Where then do we serve and obey God? Is it only as a priest? Is it only in monasticism where you leave the world and you devote your life? Only to this prayer, every and and devoting everything, completely withdrawing from the world. That's not true. And as we move along in the catechism now, we go to the table of duties. And you see here, Luther is very clear in our church fathers that here is where we serve and obey God. But we do it in this world. We don't do it locked up in the monastery or everyone think that they must go and become a priest or a nun or uh, or any other various things that that, that other other, denominations have done and thinking that there's this way that they have to serve and obey God. No. Luther says that we serve and obey, obey God here on earth, here in our various vocations that God has given us. And here is where Luther gets the three estates. Now you see in the table of duties, <clears throat> Luther's got our, the daily life broken down and then there's, he's got explanations for each one. He singles out bis, bishops, pastors, and preachers. But then he singles out what the hearers owe their pastor. Those are the people within the congregation. Then he's got of civil government... Then he looks at citizens, then to husbands, wives, parents, children, okay, that's the family, to workers of all kinds, and then to the employers and supervisors, to youth, to widow, and then to everyone. So when you take a look at these defined um, stations that Luther has done, they can be broken up, and Luther does this with these, And this is where he breaks up each of these into the three estates. So the first two that we saw on the table of duties was to bishops, pastors, and preachers, right? And then to the hearers, to the congregation. And this is the first estate. This is the church where either you're a pastor or you're a hearer of the word, okay? That's one station in life. And we're in that, right? The second estate is the state or the government, where one is either a governor or an authority or is a citizen. And we see that in the table of duties, where Luther defines what it means to be civil government or in authority, a ruler. And then Luther also defines what it means to be a citizen. So those are the two within the state government of the three estates. The third estate here is the household. And the household is actually broader than just the family. It certainly is the family, which includes marriage, man and woman, and children. But then here also Luther speaks of um, worker and employer. And Luther has this economic order um, here within the household. Now recall in the 16th century when Luther was writing this before the Industrial Re- uh, Revolution, work was always typically done out of the home, right? So it's within this that R- Luther is kind of lumping in this, uh, this, the idea of economics and working for a li- living is within this third estate of the household. And under this, the table of duties, this is where Luther is talks about to husbands, to wives, to parents, to children, to workers of all kinds, to employers and supervisors, and then to youth and to widows. So behind the table of duties here, we really have um, the three estates, or it's three could be three hierarchies that Luther talks about. And again, these three estates are a way of uh, delineating stations or structures that human beings occupy with an ordered community. In this ordered community, human beings have responsibility to discharge particular social duties. In development of this, Luther, in a lot of his writings, and I've only picked out a few, Otherwise, it, we, we just couldn't get through them. All. <clears throat> in 1528, when Luther wrote the Confession Concerning Christ's Supper, believe it or not, he addresses the three estates here. Um, in 1528, Luther, when he wrote this, he says, Here he declared that the holy orders and true religious institutions are these three. The office of priest, which is the church, the estate of marriage, which is the family, and the civil government. This is important. Faith is not bound to any particular order or estate found. Let's see. Faith is not bound to any particular order or estate found in all these three estates, but none of them are passed to righteousness before God. See, Luther's talking about the sanctified life, not the justified life. Instead, these three estates are the concrete location where faith is active in love for the well-being of the neighbor. In his commentary on Psalm one eleven in fifteen thirty, Luther wrote that these three divine stations um, continue and remain throughout all kingdoms as wide as the world, and to the end of the world. Luther always also wrote on the councils in the church in in fifteen thirty nine. Luther identified identified these three hierarchies as ordained by God, saying that we need no more. Indeed, we have enough to do in living all right and resisting the devil in these three. Here, Luther used these three God-ordained estates as a polemic against the self-chosen works of religious orders. What that means is, again, as I introduced you at the beginning, Luther w- was using these these three estate, estates against this idea that the Roman Catholic Church had, that the only real good place to do uh, a calling or good work was in these holy divine orders, either the priest or the monastery, becoming a nun or a monk, that that was really the only way how to do good works in advance, this kind of direct path to God. Laypersons, they had really no good luck, really good luck in any of that. So Luther was really writing this against Rome's positions on the monastic life. Um, in the Table of Duties here, and Luther at the beginning writes, the reason he wrote this is, here are certain passages of Scripture for various holy orders and positions all those that I went through, telling the people about, really, their duties and responsibility within these vocations. Now, um, the holy orders uh, are not, again, simply monastic or priestly orders. The holy orders of congregation, civil government, and of the domestic life, family, and economic. And again, Luther is really shaping um, a new pie- a kind of a new form of piety, um, and a new approach to vocation. This, in this area of the three estates and the table of duty, this is where the life of good works are done, not from withdrawal from the world, but by living within the very midst of the world. And this is fantastic. When you look at Luther's stuff about. Well, what are then these ordinary tasks of vocation? You know, we knew what it was for Rome, that they were very pietistical in the monasteries, praying, fasting, you know, doing everything. But what does Luther's take in, actually, then when he looks at it? What is a real ordinary task of vocation for us? And this is the best ever. I love this first one. Luther said, a mother changing her baby's diaper... Which Luther held as an act of holiness. And actually, Luther wrote more about this and says this is one of the most holy things in vocation that we do. A mother changing her baby's diaper. Isn't that great? That's great. Other ordinary tasks of vocation farmers plowing their fields, the shopkeeper selling something useful an engineer designing a useful piece of technology, an artist painting a beautiful picture, a citizen casting a vote. And you can think about what you do, all your different vocations. Some of you are mothers, some of you are fathers. uh, We're all children, right? We all have various vocations, from uh, the highest vocation that Luther says, uh, changing a baby's dirty diaper, to any other things we do in our daily lives um, to earn income a um, firefighter, uh, you know, whatever, doctor, anything. That's, your, our, that's these ordinary tasks of vocation. And this is where Luther says that the Christian truly does the good works in their sanctified life. Not any of these other structured things that are required um, um, in a monastic life, but here in, in just these everyday common common things that we do out of love for our neighbor. So the three estates, Luther then, in the small catechism, as it kind of showed here, locates the doctrine of vocation flowing out of the first article, the Creed, daily prayers, and the table of duties. Luther's doctrine of vocation is not simply related to all areas of human activity, For Luther, vocation means that God calls us in the ordinary duties within these three estates, the church, family, and the state. And this is, again, very important. It is within these three areas that the Christian lives the sanctified life and does the good works. Our good works are not done for God or for ourselves, but are done out of the love of our neighbor. Pause for a second. I'm, I'm going to move on to two kingdoms, and I'm sorry I'm going fast. We got limited time, and I want to try to get to these topics. Any questions on the three estates? Yes, sir. Just wondering, I could speak up. Uh, no, yeah. I'm just wondering <laughs> where. <laughs> would you rather really be using No, this? no. We're recording
1: it. Oh,
0: okay. Uh, I'm wondering where worship comes in into this factor. Is this a God-pleasing activity and part of our vocation as baptized Christians, or do we just ignore worship? Okay, that's a good question, and I can't answer yes or no, because I'm about to break it down. So yes, worship does come in, and that's the first estate, right? It's with the church. You're either a priest or you're a congregant and here of the word. So that is part of our vocation, is when we go to worship. Now, is, that, is worship something we do to God? Uh, not really. God doesn't really need our worship in the worship service. But what it is, remember, is worship is God coming to us. It's this idea of God instincts is the German word. Then we go to worship, everything is flowing from God to us and all the gifts. But there is something that we do in response to that. So we've got a dark line coming down straight from God, right? That's what worship is. But then there's a little dotted line that goes back up. And what is that? That is our response to the gifts that God has given us. And this is where we sing praise and give thanks to him, as we Luther taught, taught us to do in the three prayers. So yes, worship is a part of our vocation. It can either be either the pastor or the congregants. So that is and it is something that we do towards God but not to to receive any you know justification or merit for him it's all about his gifts to us but then our response to those gifts where we sing and th- and 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 think thanks and in in praise and thanksgiving so good question yes it is within that yes sir yeah um now obviously there are some things that are not our vocation. There's some like you don't have a vocation to do evil. Right. There's no, right even if you make a living for it. So like uh, you, I can't say my vocation is a professional hitman or a racketeer, right? Right. Um, so <laughs> good. But I'm wondering is there such a thing as a thing I ought to do but which is not part of my vocation or are all good works from vocation? Yeah. I think that that that's something we got to be very very careful on. I think that Luther and other modern theologians, when we look at this, uh, we are to really act within our vocations, you know, and we so, and, and we got to be careful not to sometimes step out of those. Now again, there's no bright line with that. Meaning the the morning of the Good Samaritan, if we're driving on the highway and you see someone that hurt and rendered aid, we're not going to say, well, it's not within my vocation. I'm not a trained EMT. I'm not going to stop. You know, there's not. You know, there's not real concrete lines on this But I think at the, at the same time We should understand that really what we do And when we do things We do them within our vocations And sometimes it can be harmful Or even sinful When we try to step out of those voc- God-given vocations to us And act in areas Which really God has not called us to Or given us to do So, but yeah, But I don't think there's a real clear line You know, sometimes it's uh, we may think we 're doing our vocation we 're not, or we 're doing it we do something and think it 's not our vocation, but it really was your vocation, so not too, not real bright lines but but that 's a good point point. and I do appreciate all you saying too there are things that humans do that are not classified in one of these three estates, of course, as you said, a professional hitman so these these three estates certainly are are, are these vocations. Or really, just, when you look at the table of duties with respect to each one of those and the biblical passages that Luther spells out, you can see how the Bible and our Lord really creates the foundation for all these different areas. And it's there within that that our Lord tells us that how we live within those different vocations. So. You're making me think an awful lot of things. Mm-hmm. But in reference to the last question. Um, I'm, I've been thinking about Prince Frederick and how he protected Luther. So I think it's kind of a dance between the church and the state and, the, and that kind of thing yeah. that happens sometimes. Yeah, and that brings us to a really good uh, segue into my next uh, my next topic, which is the two kingdoms. But you're right, uh, King... Um, but remember back in, the, in that time, though, there was no separation of church and state, though, but, but uh, Frederick did... Um, Frederick the Great uh, no Frederick the Wise Frederick the Wise is the one that stepped in and really helped Luther out during this time and protected him from the Roman church that's exactly right and was that his vocation I mean yeah I guess so right It was. The, Luther was one of his subjects and he was protecting those people within the realm of his authority so yeah very good point and that's a great segue into let me jump into this then now I wanna we talked about the three estates and now we're gonna I wanna look at this concept of two kingdoms. And I'm sure you've heard of, heard it, but let me get a little bit further into it. I've only got about fifteen minutes here, so i to So Luther's understanding of the two kingdoms, it's this it's the relationship between the authority that God has instituted in creation to govern the world, and that's where we where God restrains evil and creates a space where where human life may flourish. And this is God's left-hand kingdom, excuse me, versus in the relationship, the authority that God has demonstrated in the gospel, the authority to forgive sins, and that's God's right-hand kingdom. And it's very important, very important, that these two kingdoms need to be distinguished. For further reading, a lot of reading here I've done on this. There's a lot of great stuff. Um, this, this temporal authority, to what extent it should be obeyed. Luther wrote in 1523. You can Google it and get it. The other one is whether soldiers too can be saved. Luther wrote in 1526. It's an unbelievable piece uh, where he actually is addressing a soldier who's going to war. And then, of course, our confessions, Augsburg Confessions 16 and 28 really talk about this. One thing I wanted to start out here to begin with, because I never knew this till I started looking at it, I want to clarify something right off the back on the two kingdoms. It is, and I've underlined, a mistake. It is a mistake to say that Luther's two kingdom theology can be equated with the Jeffersonian notion of separation of church and state. They're not the same. Luther did not envision the notion of separation of church and state um, as we know it in a modern democracy. Luther, Luther was writing this in the 1600s where the state and the church were the same. But when he wrote this, he really wasn't dealing with that. He's, Luther is writing it from the concept of vocation, the street, three estates, how we're to live our lives, and where we do our good works. It wasn't, a, it wasn't political rhetoric about um, church and state. So when I'm, when I'm talking about the two kingdoms, um, um, I'm, I'm not, we're not in that realm. So it has nothing to do with church and state. What does it have to do? I'm going to go through this, and then I think I get to this in about 10 minutes here. If you guys will just... my This thing, I, can, I, I can't take credit for this. This was handed out to me in my... I took a class last quarter at Fort Wayne Seminary on theological ethics from John Pless, uh, Professor Pless, he uh, did this, so I scanned it in. So, And unfortunately, I'm not smart enough how to put it on there. but I'm standing in front of everybody, giving complete credit uh, to Professor Pless um, for this great, uh, I think it's really great. It looked a little cheesy at first when he handed it to class. We kind of chuckled, but then when we go through it, it's really awesome. So this is the, you see, we've got um, on the left, we've got God's left-hand kingdom. And it's just not left hand kingdom but it's God's left hand kingdom and right hand kingdom and that's done intentionally and number one up at the top you see that's God God's above everything because God is giving and ruling and he is giving and rules both the left hand kingdom and the right hand kingdom this is why God is at the top of the chart here In the left-hand kingdom, we have then, in the box, it's dealing with creation. And in the kingdom of the right hand, it's redemption. And I'll go through that here here in a bit. So, God, we've got left-hand and right-hand kingdom. To the side, you can see we've got two circles. Under God's left-hand kingdom, we have kingdom of the eye. You see that? And then under God's uh, right-hand kingdom, we have kingdom of the ear. Now, in in one of Luther's last sermons that he ever preached in late 1545, it was a a sermon on Psalm 8. Luther actually described these two kingdoms as the uh, the eye, the kingdom of the eye, and the kingdom of the ear. And what he meant by that in the left-hand kingdom... Why is it an eye? You know, the, uh, obviously the eye is the organ of visual apprehension. That's what we see from. We comprehend. Well, the eye—that's what we, it's going on in the left-hand kingdom. It's everything that we really can see. It's how God governs the left-hand kingdom. Everything that's kind of seen on earth. Okay, as opposed to the God's right-hand kingdom, which is actually the kingdom of the ear. It's not a kingdom that you have by sight. No, it's a kingdom of faith because faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of Christ. So again, this is the right-hand kingdom is the kingdom of the ear. Now we move on the list um, underneath the squares. Um, We've got a couple things. We've got law and gospel. So in the kingdom of we can look at these two kingdoms and it really in terms of contrasting realities then when we get into these. Uh, God is g- governing the kingdom of the left hand by the law. You know, in Romans 13, Caesar does not carry the sword as a decorative piece, no, he carries the sword to punish evildoers and this is where um, the law is used in the left hand kingdom. That's where we get all our laws, punishment. That's where the political use of the law comes into. You know, we learned about the three uses of the law. Uh, curb, mirror, guide. Well, this curb, that's where this is taking place. The law curbs. It keeps this old world from going into complete chaos. For, um, now, the kingdom of the right hand, God doesn't rule us his people, Christians, by the law, but it's here where it's the gospel, right? It's the forgiveness of sins, the preaching of the gospel of Jesus Christ. That's done in the right-hand kingdom. Under law and gospel, we see retribution and forgiveness of sins. The law works retribution in the left hand. You really cannot understand law without retribution. The law says... If you do this, what? There are consequences. And what are the consequences? Usually our law in modern society, it's threats and punishment, right? And this is what happened here uh, in the left-hand kingdom. Well, we've got law, retribution, punishment. But in the right-hand kingdom, we don't have that. We have the forgiveness of sins. The gospel does not work um, with condition or retribution, but by the announcement of the forgiveness of sins. So, in God's right hand kingdom, it's all about the gift of the forgiveness of sins. In the left hand kingdom, then uh, we've got works, and I've t- kind of talked about this earlier in the three the three estates. We've got works, and then we have faith. Now, works do have their place in creation, as I talked about. Not in the justified life, but it's in the sanctified life. And here, though, is where we, we do works. And, you know, we evaluate works. Society evaluate works all the time. Um, and society reward works. And we see it in different, all kinds of occupations. When you go to work and you write, you, you do your job, what do you do? You expect a salary. And that this is for... Um, you know, in response to what you have done. Now, in the right hand, though, we don't have that system. In the right hand kingdom, it's not about works, but it's faith alone. Faith alone receives what God gives in the gospel. Um, six here reason versus Holy Scripture, just briefly. And the third article of the Apostles' Creed. Luther first state, states that I believe that God has made me and all my creatures. It has given me my body and soul. Oh, excuse me, the first articles, body and soul, eyes, ears, and all my members. God has given me my reasons and all my senses. But then, in the third article, Luther on sanctification writes under talking about the Holy Spirit and sanctified life. What does this mean? I believe that I cannot by my own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, my Lord. So first, Luther says that God gave man reason, but then says, but with reason, you cannot by your own reason or strength believe in Jesus Christ, our Lord. And what's happening here, in the left-hand key- kingdom, God, Luther can praise reason. He does see that reason was that, um, that was given to man, and that's what separates man from the animals. But when it comes to reason of fear in In faith in the right hand kingdom, Luther will use language such as reason is actually of the devil. Reason in God's right hand cannot be trusted. Reason is not to be used to guide you or your understanding of your standing before God. There, we don't rely on reason. We rely on Holy Scripture in the right hand kingdom. Preservation versus salvation in the left, God's left-hand kingdom. God is working for preservation. He wants to keep this creation intact until the day of His coming. In the left-hand kingdom, God is not working to bring a kind of utopia or this heaven on earth. He is simply preserving order until the day of judgment. In the left-hand kingdom then is where this vocation is. The concept of uh, love for the neighbor and uh, And this is where everything of the created order is taking place in the left-hand kingdom. It's all about preservation. The right-hand kingdom, though, is not preservation. It's salvation. In the kingdom of his right hand, he is not going to simply renovate a fallen creation, but to give that creation salvation, a new heaven, a new earth. And then, in the left-hand kingdom, oops, I should go back one. In the left-hand kingdom, it's temporal, right? Versus the right-hand kingdom, which is eternal. The kingdom is left-hand. It is in time. It has a specific created created time, and it will have a specific ending on the day that Christ comes for the second time. However, the right-hand kingdom is eternal. It has been around before the creation of the world, and it will be around for eternity. Um, the Christian here, you see the, the little man in the, the middle with the Bible? This is very important. You see where, the, where we live, the Christian, we live in both the left-hand kingdom and the right-hand kingdom at the same time. And then you can see above the little man, it's got sanctification with the arrow coming down. This is where we're right now living our sanctified life. Again, not the justified life. We're already standing before God and, 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 and we're God's children based on being justified. But now in our sanctified life, we're, we're living in God's right-hand kingdom. Yes, that's where we get the forgiveness of sins. This is what we're getting today in the divine service. But at the same time, we're also living in creation. And this is where we go about our vocation within our three estates. Um, until uh, we either die or uh, Jesus comes back, if that's before you die. Um, Finally here, I only got like one more minute. I apologize, I'm getting through this really quick. Um, You see at the bottom, attack. We constantly, both the left-hand kingdom and the right-hand kingdom, are under attack by Satan at all times. He's doing what he can to destroy. He doesn't want to see this separation. He doesn't want us to understand the right and left-hand kingdom. What he's always doing is mixing this up on everything. Therefore, you see, he now wants government leaders telling people what they can and cannot believe. Or in the right-hand kingdom, he wants the church to try to get in and interfere in these different areas. And that's what the devil do. The devil is always attacking both of these two kingdoms and he's also attacking us when we're in our vocation in the left hand kingdom but then he's also attacking us in the right hand kingdom as our, when we're Christian constantly trying to destroy your faith or to cause you this uncertainty of your salvation and that's why in the seventh petition the Lord's Prayer we, we pray um, deliver us from evil Luther has a lot uh, to say about this in, in writing about the Lord's Prayer, about how Satan is constantly attacking us in these two kingdoms. So again, um, there's no doubt that Luther's thinking on the two kingdoms and the three estates can be helpful in trying to come to grips with the relation between religion and society, society today. The fundamental idea behind the doctrine of the two kingdoms is the biblical teaching that while God's right-hand kingdom is not of this world, this world is where his disciples still are. Luther therefore insists with good reason that while the task of God's left-hand kingdom is limited, it is still a positive one as Christians are now to live as justified sinners within the estates where God has placed them, church, family, and state. And as we close... Again, good works. God's left-hand kingdom and the the three estates are where good works are done. Luther said, God doesn't need my good works, but my neighbor does. Luther's doctrine of vocation drives us away from self-chosen good works, which we might think are pleasing to God, i.e., I must go to a monastery, become a nun, or whatever you think, um, outside of a vocation. It is clear from Luther's perspective that the good works that Christians do as a fruit of their faith is done towards a neighbor. These works form the basis of a Christian life. This is the sanctified life that the Christian lives. Good works are not done to prove the facts of one justification in a um, self-aggrandizing way, but done only out of love for the neighbor and on behalf of the neighbor's benefit. And when we do these good works for our neighbor, we are truly living a Christian life. And unfortunately, I'm going to have to end it there and uh, get over to the, our next service. So I thank you all for attending and hearing me out. If you've got any questions, catch me. And there's a lot of reading on this stuff, a lot of good stuff from CPH out there. And again, this book, One Lord, Two Hands, um, it's, it's a great book that talks about this. So um, the Lord be with you. Amen.